Beyond Belief, Fact or Fiction. Hosted by Jonathan Frakes. Tonight, your challenge is to separate what is true from what is false. Five stories, some real, some fake. Can you judge which are fact and which are fiction? To find out, you must enter a world of both truth and deception. A world that is beyond belief. Hello and welcome back to Eager Believers, the podcast where we separate the factoids from the falsehoods in another episode of Beyond Belief, Fact or Fiction. I'm your host, Aaron Coker, a.k.a. Caliban, and I love to go a-wandering beneath a clear blue sky. And what a day for it, as we're back to discuss the first episode of the third season of Beyond Belief with an exciting and chilling array of stories waiting for us this week. But first, joining us on tonight's episode, he's a science fiction writer, an editor, and also a podcaster. His podcast, Generations Geek, is a more or less family-friendly celebration of geekdom. It's Scott Pearson. Scott, welcome to the show. Happy to be here. I'm uh, always trying to figure out fact from fiction in my real life, so <laughs> I'm ready, ready to go. I don't know if we can help you with your real life, but we could definitely determine fact from fiction in a few of our tales tonight. Uh, tell us about Generations Geek. What do you talk about on the show? My daughter and I talk about all things geeky, books, comic books, movies, TV shows. Uh, we've been doing it since she was 14. It was family-friendly to start with. Now it's just more or less family-friendly. Gets a little bit trickier when you have a college-age student compared to a 14-year-old. <laughs> and it become, I have to imagine that it becomes less of a, uh, hey, honey, let me show you some of the things that daddy's into. And uh, now she's calling the shots in a, in, a, in a lot of ways as well. Yes. And, I mean, she took to my geeky interests very quickly and very young. But there are, are still things where we diverge a little bit. So yeah, it's it's nice when she brings in stuff that I may have missed. As a father who was a geek, did you ever worry about pushing things that you were interested in on your uh, on your kid and not wanting them to just become a carbon copy of you and their fandom? <laughs> yeah, I well, I made a point of you know, I didn't I, at least from at least it felt to me that I was never indoctrinating. Yeah. I would just you know, every once in a while, when it was age appropriate, I might show her something that I enjoyed and I would see if she would enjoy it as well. And more often than not, she just went hook, line and sinker for stuff that I showed her and <laughs> turned into a, you know, mini me. Sure. Uh, now that sort of uh, flips the responsibility because it's like I would be in your shoes looking at my own fandoms like if she's going to take to this, like I just watch this as a lark. Like I know this is bad. <laughs> I don't want to get her exposed to this and create another fan of this thing, uh, whatever that may be. Uh, I I don't have any kids, but uh, I always wondered uh, when the right age would be to show them uh, like Star Wars, for instance. Um, but now it doesn't matter because Star Wars sucks. So I'm not going to show them anyway. <laughs> Well, my running joke is that there, Star Wars came out in 1977. That that's all there is. No, <laughs> right. No, no Roman numerals. No, yeah. No, it's just Star Wars. Right. I have a uh, I have a friend who maintains the same and says that you know the Jedi can't uh, do crazy things like run fast or jump up or push people with the Force. They're just old weird guys, and you're not actually sure <laughs> if they're full of crap or if there actually is a yeah. Force or not. Yeah. I I do. My I, I my expansion of the joke is that I do enjoy the 
extended Star Wars deleted scene that was released under the name Rogue One. Okay, sure. Yeah. (laughs) And also, of course, uh, the totally canon Star Wars holiday special. (laughs) Containing uh, all the cast from the original movie. Well, uh, thanks for joining us today uh, in the midst of the coronavirus uh, epidemic, which, of course, is on everybody's minds right now. And for me, it's one of those things where you know the majority of the population is, is healthy, although we are sheltering in place. We're being careful uh, not to spread or contract the virus. But it still has this air of doom and gloom like something bad is 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 coming and it feels absurd this distance between what we hear this bad outcome could be and me just sitting around in my pajamas you know watching netflix and i feel like that old mitchell and webb sketch about the event where they have a game show similar to this one where they're talking about all the bad things that happened after the event but they never tell you what the event is and it's very abstract <laughs> yeah i i love mitchell and webb that that the Mitchell and Webb show or whatever the name of that show was. And that sketch really does stand out as a, the, a running thing that they had throughout the series. Yeah. I think they did when they were on the radio before uh, Mitchell and Webb look, which, which was their TV mm-hmm. show. Uh, they did a radio version of that. That's really funny too. Oh, I haven't heard that. Well, as you're sheltering in place, speaking of myths and legends and things to believe or not, there are a lot of myths and information about coronavirus. So make sure you take your facts straight from the CDC and the Department of Health and stay healthy and safe, everyone. As we move on here, what is your experience with Beyond Belief Factor Fiction? I'm not a dedicated viewer, but uh, I've watched enough that I uh, noticed the uh, the switch from James Brolin to Jonathan Frakes in the mm. second season. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, wasn't at first convinced by this Frakes guy. I like James Brolin, but uh, 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 Frakes is growing on me. He right. seems to be a, a likable guy and um, you know a better actor than uh, than those in the segments. <laughs> <laughs> hey, we're all doing our best here. But, <laughs> you know, you're talking about James Brolin. We were speaking about uh, Westworld off the air, and of course, James Brolin appears in the 1973 film Westworld. Yes, and uh, a film that. Uh, I rewatched with my daughter for a segment of our show, and it, it has not aged well. No, and it's not. I mean, Michael Crichton, you know, was uh, who directed and also wrote Westworld, is uh, quite a imaginative talent, and he's, of course, is interested in the intersection between science and the schlocky <laughs> film, I guess. Uh, but. He's not somebody who necessarily can pace a film very well. Uh, Not a lot happens in Westworld for the first maybe hour or so of the pick until things start to really go wrong. And up till that point, I feel like we're supposed to just drink in this amazing idea of being able to go to a park where robots are cowboys. But uh, things don't really kick off until much later in the film. And then when things do kick off, it's still just a very thinly plotted story there, there's just really not much there it's uh yeah. and that's you know the tv series has really delved into the implications and 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 really exploited what you could out of the idea much better but then they've kind of gone to the opposite extreme whereas nothing much seemed to happen in the film there's so much stuff happening in the tv show oh, that half yeah. the time i can't follow are we in a flash forward, a flash backward, a dream sequence? I don't know. <laughs> yes. I, I bet Michael Crichton would have loved that, though. <laughs> uh, and, of course, they are claiming to explore all these ideas of the bicameral mind and the nature of existence. Uh, but I think the show often gets sidetracked 
uh, into uh, fittingly into these side quests about other little uh, things that are going on or, or just providing the kind of violence and sex that you see on an HBO show. Uh, I have seen the first episode of the third season, though, and I will say that it feels like the show is starting to center itself and uh, leading to hopefully a better place where we can examine some of these things that they, they claim to want to examine. Yeah. It's interesting. It's fascinating, the idea of artificial life and AI, which, let's face it, I mean, unless something happens, the event, and we lose all computing power, uh, we're going to get there someday. We're going to have to deal with computers and robots. I mean, we're already talking to uh, to our Alexas or to our phones now, so it's it's going to happen sometime in the future. Yeah. Who knows if it'll be wearing a cowboy hat, though. <laughs> well, uh, you mentioned Jonathan Frakes before, and I have to say that no shade to James Brolin, uh, who I do like a lot, but I think Frakes is a better fit for the show. Uh, having him, having the kind of, um, the sort of winking, uh, wry delivery of a lot of the uh, sort of cheesy, you know, funny lines on the show, yeah. uh, I think is a, is a better fit. I think that he goes well with uh, announcer Don LaFontaine as well. And uh, yeah, I think he's he's doing great in the show. Um, I remember seeing him originally, I think, in North and South a long time ago. But of course, he's been a prolific voice actor and done more since then. He's lent his dulcet tones to shows like Gargoyles, Family Guy, and Guardians of the Galaxy. Uh, he's also become a very prolific and successful film and TV director as well, uh, directing most recently a pair of episodes uh, for the Seth MacFarlane show, The Orville, which uh, I'm not familiar with, but is a space type show. Yeah, I haven't really watched it. I just um, when I'm watching Frakes, he's just so likable. I, I find myself wondering why he hasn't had more success as an actor. Why doesn't he have his own series, a dramatic series, not uh, this uh, weird cheesy thing? <laughs> That's true. I think that also he would be really great on like a weekly show where he would be able to exploit his comedic talents, but in a uh, more serious setting. Yeah. You know, having yeah. a setting with some tension, but he could be the guy that sort of pops that bubble of tension with uh, his one liners. But um, he is talented as a director, though, and he's become very successful at that. And, you know, stick to what you're good at, I guess. Yep. Well, thanks for joining us, Scott, and good luck tonight on the show. Every week on Eager Believers, we examine an episode of the sci-fi series Beyond Belief, Fact or Fiction. And for each segment of the show, I present three facts about the subject of that segment. One of those facts is actually fiction, and it's up to our guest to determine what is true and what is truly beyond belief. Are you ready, Scott? Ready as I'll ever be. Scott is playing tonight for his charity of choice, Feed the Kids, the fight against goat hunger. Don't be gruff, help little Billy eat tonight, Feed the Kids. Our first story tonight is called Morning Sickness, and as host Jonathan Frakes says, they come in strips, sticks, tubes, and kits. He's talking about pregnancy tests and their availability these days. He says they're next to the beer and potato chips, and I don't know what convenience store Jonathan Frakes goes to, but it sounds like it's built for speed. <laughs> got everything you need at the counter there. They got lotto tickets, shotgun shells, and norepinephrine just ready to go. In the episode, we meet a young high school graduate named Marissa Baker, who is starting college in the fall. But for now, she's enjoying her summer, frequently going to the beach with her boyfriend, Jason. But there's a problem. Marissa is experiencing intense morning sickness. Her parents assume the worst, that maybe she and her boyfriend have taken things a little too far. They stop off at a convenience store, I'm guessing, for a pregnancy test, but the test is negative, and Marissa swears she is not pregnant. 
They visit kindly Dr. Saperstein, and he suggests that it's a cyst, and he schedules her for an operation. During the operation, the surgeon is surprised to find something moving inside Marissa, and is shocked to find that there is a baby octopus inside Marissa's abdominal cavity. She must have swallowed, it's theorized, an octopus egg at the beach that hatched inside of her body. The octopus is removed, and Marissa recovers. This is a terrifying situation, which I could, uh, it's very plausible. I could believe that something like this would happen. There was one thing that struck me. Uh, there's a line where she says, it's it's just the flu, which, which lands very differently now. Yeah, right. <laughs> Maybe that's the next stage of coronavirus. <laughs> you think you've recovered and then guess what? Yeah, it's uh, 40,000 leagues under the sea. Uh, well, I've got a few facts to go with this possible fiction tonight. And it's your job to guess which of these three facts is not true and is okay. fictional. The first fact, the male octopus has a specialized arm called a hectocotylus, which he uses to deposit sperm in the female's mantle cavity for fertilization. And he does not call her the next day, which is, uh, that's a shame. The next fact is, after mating, the female deposits her eggs in a crevice or under an overhang where they are left to fend for themselves until they hatch in around five months. And the third fact, octopuses have an optic gland similar to the pituitary gland in mammals that is connected to their brooding behavior or their nesting behavior. If that gland is removed, the octopus's lifespan nearly doubles. Which of these facts is beyond belief? Boy, they they all sound very plausible. Um, I'm, I'm going to go with number three, I think. The octopus and their optic gland. Well, the truth in this case is that the second fact was, in fact, false. The oh. female deposits her eggs. Uh, it's about 10,000 to 70,000 eggs on these strings uh, under a crevice or an overhang. Then she guards and cares for those eggs for about five months. This is part of that brooding behavior that I mentioned uh, in connection with the optic gland. Uh, while doing this, apparently the optic gland sends signals to the octopus's body to stop producing digestive juices. So the octopus slowly starves to death while taking care of these children, which is a fact all mothers, I think, can relate to. <laughs> and the male doesn't get out of this either. After mating, the same thing sort of happens to the male, and they die a few weeks after mating. So scientists have found uh, in the lab that they can remove this gland, and whatever sends those signals to the octopus is gone, and the octopus uh, live lives double twice as long as they would as it uh as if they had sex but without sex what kind of life is it that's <laughs> that i don't know if you've uh, seen any octopuses on reddit lately but i bet they're not very happy i um i was hoping in, in the episode that it would turn out to be an alien baby when it when the test was <laughs> negative but perhaps that's you know too far out even for beyond belief that i might, don't know that might be beyond belief but of course yeah. the show's called beyond belief there's a there's a crazy theory i don't know whose theory it is or if it's even um or if it's even credible but some people think that octopus octopuses it's a greek word it's not latinized into octopi octopuses come from outer space uh because of something in their genetic structure or they're just so dissimilar to other creatures uh, other mollusks and cephalopods, of course, um, that people think that they have an extraterrestrial origin. I I like the idea. I've heard it before. 
and they are just such interesting creatures. I like the idea that there's aliens living amongst us. I think it's the dual lobed eye. It's just so freaky. <laughs> it's so strange. But who knows? Our second story tonight is titled The Curse of Hampton Manor. Jonathan Frakes asks us, have you noticed what big stars real estate agents have become? Uh, I personally haven't, but I'll take his word for it. This <laughs> Maybe particular it's a California thing. Yeah, I think it probably is, as you'll see in the story. Uh, this particular tale revolves around Bev Conklin, who is described as the number one agent on the West Coast, but someone who is perhaps lacking in professional ethics. She's about to sell a house to Mr. and Mrs. Mackle, a wealthy stockbroker and his wife. The problem is Hampton Manor has a reputation for being cursed. All five of its previous owners have died under Mr circumstances. That's nothing to Bev, though, and she closes the deal with the Mackles without disclosing the house's history. She's scolded by her assistant, Gina, but as far as Bev is concerned, curses aren't covered under disclosure laws. And again, I don't know the laws in California, but I imagine that that would probably be true. Yeah. Now, if ghosts had been making methamphetamine on the premises, she would have to share that. <laughs> Six months go by, and Bev receives a visit from Mr. Mackle, who is in bad shape. He appears to have aged 20 years, and he tells Bev that his business is shot, his wife has left him, and he has gone bankrupt. And he heard from the neighbors that the house that he bought is cursed. He begs Bev to resell the house, but Bev, seeing an opportunity, offers to buy the house for less than half of what the Mackles paid. Seeing no other way out, Mr. Mackle takes the deal, and Bev moves into the house. Later that evening... Bev is enjoying a bubble bath in the house that she bought for a song and gloating about it on the phone to her assistant while scoffing at the idea of a curse. However, lightning strikes a phone line near the house and the charge runs through the house's plumbing, electrocuting and killing Bev in her cursed house. At the end of the story, Frakes lets us know that the house had another famous owner, hotelier and real estate mogul Leona Helmsley, the Queen of Mean. And that's going to be a Wikipedia lookup, I think, for most of our listeners. <laughs> but back before we had anything to worry about, coronavirus, whatever, uh, there was a famous personality called Leona Helmsley who uh, took a lot of drubbing from the late night shows for being a real meanie. I think it was like she she refused to pay her contractors or something like that. And then that revealed like uh, tax evading that she was doing. It was a whole whole thing back then. Yeah. That's all fact that we know. Let's move on to possible fictions. Here are the possible facts that we have to go with this story, and they are real estate facts. First up, germs are on people's minds right now, and rightly so, and one of the most germy places in a house isn't the bathroom, but the humble doorknob. The CDC recommends disinfecting your doorknobs, especially your bathroom doorknobs, at least once a day to keep the germs away. Our second fact, there is a Bavarian town that was actually built in a meteor crater. You can still see the circular layout of the town to this day. An asteroid hit the town over a thousand years ago, but far from being pressured to leave, the locals started building a town on the remaining crater. And our third fact, in 2005, a Canadian blogger started with a paperclip and through a series of trades made over the course of a year, bartered his way into a two-story farmhouse. Which of these facts is beyond belief. I'm going to go with number three again. Number three, the Canadian blogger who had the paperclip. Yes. The actual false fact was fact number one, the one about germs. Huh. 
So it's safe to lick doorknobs, actually? I don't know about licking, but uh, for centuries, doorknobs and knockers have been made specifically of materials like silver, iron, copper, and aluminum. These are all materials that, through their own properties, uh, kill bacteria and serve as natural self-disinfectants. So there's no need to worry about who touched the doorknob uh, Mm. when you're heading to an open house or, or coming out of the bathroom, yeah. A uh, funny story. The story about the Canadian blogger is true. It's a guy named Kyle McDonald. He's a Canadian blogger who started off with a paperclip in a series of 15 trades over the course of a year, uh, ended up with a house, a two-story farmhouse. Uh, the last trade before the house, uh, he traded a role in a F- Corbin Burnson film, a film that Corbin Burnson uh, directed uh, called <laughs> Donna on Demand uh, for the house. Yes. Uh, but after, this is in 2005, 2006. But after the housing crisis of 2008, he's probably thinking, I should see where that paperclip ended up. It's, Still sounds unbelievable to me. A, a, a Corbin <laughs> yeah. Brunson film. Yes. Uh, That's the most unbelievable link in that chain. Possibly the <laughs> most potentially fictional thing on this show. As a side note, on this particular episode, my uh, great aunt once um, lightning struck a phone line near her house and her phone exploded on the wall. Oh my goodness. And wow. left. There was a, um, you could see like a shadow of the spiral phone cord back when cords, you know, <laughs> phones had cords uh, on the wallpaper. Like was, a like, Hiroshima burnt. shadow. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and and they, they discovered that there was a, um, the, the ground wire of the phone line right outside the house sure. had, had deteriorated. So her, her phone line okay. was not grounded. Okay. And so, Yeah. Was it was it an old house? Oh yes. Okay. All right. Yeah, and this this happened decades ago. Sure. Sure. When you know when phones had cords and rotary dials on them. Yeah. Right. Uh, Leona Helmsley had a really big one. Yeah, it was a while ago. I've lived in a couple old houses myself in the area that I live in. Uh, like a lot of cities, uh, there was a lot of housing uh, built very fast to accommodate workers and people moving in uh, to get involved in industry. And so I've poked around in the uh, wiring of some of these houses, and there's a lot of things that aren't quite up to code. It's like, yeah, oh, that's uh, that's a lot of copper I'm seeing there. Uh, but hopefully everything will be okay. Stay off the phone. Uh, our third story of the night is called Wax executioner and as frakes tells us of all the instruments of capital punishment surely the most fiendish is the guillotine our story centers around lafont wax museum owned and operated by pierre saint jean and his brother henri pierre was a perfectionist in his work he was constructing a display that would be the piece de la resistance of his new museum a depiction of the beheading of marie antoinette For the display, he ordered a real functioning guillotine blade that was an exact replica of the one that decapitated Marie Antoinette. While assembling the display, Pierre saw that the hooded executioner figure that was part of the exhibit had been set up early, and Pierre, who could be something of a taskmaster, chided his brother Henri for working recklessly. Henri, however, maintained that he wasn't the one who placed the executioner. While Pierre was putting the finishing touches on the exhibit, the blade suddenly began to fall, and Pierre barely missed losing his own head. The brothers figured it must have been some kind of accident or freak accident, but the executioner figure's hand was holding the release for the blade. 
Some weeks later, the brothers held a champagne feat for the museum's opening, and during the party, a young couple sneaked away to see the exhibits. Finding the Marie Antoinette display fascinating, they wanted to get a picture with it. They said it would be the bomb. So the young woman removed the Marie Antoinette figure and put her own head in the guillotine. As the man lined up the photo, the executioner's hand once again was on the release for the blade, and the girl screamed as the blade fell. The partygoers rushed to the scene to find that the girl was unharmed. Pierre, distrustful of the exhibit after his own near miss, had replaced the exhibit's real blade with a harmless balsa wood one, and after this latest incident, he decided to remove as well the sinister executioner figure whose hand eagerly clutched the rope that controlled the deadly blade. A fantastic story, to be sure, and we'll find yes. out at the end of the show whether or not it's true. And I love how they have an actual functioning guillotine, and the only safety precaution they put in is this little tiny peg that holds it on one side. <laughs> yes, which, as we see in the episode, not very safe. And unless there was some sort of motorized uh, working to this thing, some action that raises and lowers the blade, why have it move at all? Just nail it up there. <laughs> yeah. You got this expensive blade you stuck in there. Come on. Well, here are our facts to go with this possible fiction, and they concern Madame Anna Maria Tussaud, the real Madame Tussaud. And speaking of Marie Antoinette, our first fact, Madame Tussaud was invited to join the court of Louis XVI and Marie Antoinette so she could teach art to the king's sister. However, things, of course, didn't turn out well for Mr. and Mrs. XVI, and Madame Tussaud ended up making her former employer's death masks after they were executed in the French Revolution. Our next fact, speaking of decapitation, in 2008, a man rushed past security of the L.A. Madame Tussauds and ripped the head of their statue of George W. Bush off. He later said after being released from custody that, quote, it disturbs me that Bush should become a tourist attraction, end quote. <laughs> and our last fact, many famous actors and musicians have also been immortalized in wax, but some before their time. In 2010, Musician Ozzy Osbourne posed as himself at a Madame Tussauds to scare the tourists that got a little too close. No word on whether the bat he was carrying was wax or the real thing. <laughs> Scott, which of these facts is beyond belief? Let's see. What was what was the first one again? The first one was that Madame Tussaud, the historical one, uh, went to join the court, court of Louis the Sixteenth, and that she made her former employer's death masks after they were executed in the okay. French Revolution. Um. Okay, maybe the third time will be the charm. I'm going to go with number three again. Number three, the Ozzy Osbourne fact, is actually true. Oh, my God. Ozzy Osbourne did pose in 2010 in a Madame Tussauds, I'm assuming in L.A., to scare people, which, uh, yeah, if you see Ozzy Osbourne, who already looks like a wax figure, and then he comes alive and starts charging at you, uh, you don't know where you are. Uh, no, the actual falsehood in this case was the second fact, uh, which was actually a Berlin man who beheaded a statue on the opening day of the Berlin Madame Tussauds. It was the statue of Hitler that he ripped the head off of. No, ah. Yes, no word on whether anybody has tried to hang the Mussolini statue upside down. <laughs> I'm I'm letting down the hungry kids. Yeah, so far, um, not I, so I, great. I, I, I've struck out three, three, three down. At the halfway, yes, we're three down, but you have the chance to redeem yourself with two more questions for two more stories. When we come back, we're going to take a break for a word from our sponsors, and we'll be back for the final two rounds of Eager Believers, so stay tuned. Beyond Belief, Fact or Fiction. 
Mikan Hana. And I'm Caliban. And we're the hosts of the Sailor Noob Podcast. I'm the expert. And I'm the noob. You're talking into the wrong end of the microphone. Aye, aye. Okay. Every week we watch a new episode of Sailor Moon and learn about monsters, fashion, food, culture, and of course, the Sailor Warrior of Love and Justice, Sailor Moon. All right. Now, what is her rank? Is she an admiral or a rear admiral? Okay, shh, shh. The ad's almost over. We're a couple of magical people, and every week we moon prison power make up a new episode. Please stop that. Sailor Noob is available every Friday on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Shiver me timbers. Okay, we're back, eager believers, and we're up to our fourth story of the night. This one is entitled Blood Bank, and it's a doozy. Jonathan Frakes tells us that to many seriously ill people, IV bags mean life itself because of the important fluids that they deliver. Nurse Gwen Buckbinder, and if we're keeping track, I think this is the name of the week. Of course, all these names are made up by the producers to hide the identities of the real people, but Buckbinder, that's a winner. Nurse Buckbinder worked the night shift in the intensive care unit of a major American hospital. One night, a John Doe patient came in on the edge of death. After he was given IV blood and fluids, he showed a marked improvement, but he was unable or unwilling to speak, and he had no appetite for solid food. The next night, Gwen heard noises from the patient's room, and she entered to find an old couple, somewhat archaically dressed, who introduced themselves as the Canes. They had a little bit of a Eastern European vibe going on, and when Gwen entered, the elder man was coming somewhat suspiciously out of the bathroom. The Canes told Gwen that the patient's name was Eric Creighton, and that he worked for them. Eric asked Gwen for some time alone with the couple, and even though it was far past visiting hours, Gwen acquiesced. Later, as the couple was leaving, Gwen saw that the old man was dragging two very large bags with him. Gwen went back to Eric's room to inspect the bathroom, but Eric quickly stopped her, looking much healthier than he had just the night before. The next night, Gwen hears from a co-worker that 200 bags of plasma had been stolen from the hospital's blood bank. She asks the co-worker to take Eric away in a wheelchair for an x-ray while she examines his bathroom. When she does, she sees dozens of empty blood bags and blood everywhere. At that moment, Eric returns, pushing the male nurse in the wheelchair. The male nurse is unconscious and has two puncture wounds in his neck. Eric is furious, and he attacks Gwen, but before he can bite her, security runs to her rescue, and Eric turns and throws himself out of a sixth-story window, never to be seen again. Beats paying the bill. <laughs> that was, uh, I, I, I really didn't understand. She, she goes into the room. And the old man comes out of the bathroom, and she thinks to herself, "What was that man doing why, in the bathroom?" Why is an old man in the bathroom. <laughs> like he was going to the bathroom. Yeah, right. <laughs> How was that sinister? How was that? It that made no sense to me. Yes, uh, that of course. I, I I thought that that was strange as well. Maybe the actor just missed his mark. But no, that becomes important to the story. Yeah, later on. and so it was one of those things where they didn't come up with like plausible motivation for her to you know, find it strange. <laughs> yes. They just needed to establish that there was something weird about the bathroom. Yes. So we'll just have her say, why that's so weird that this that man is in the bathroom. And we can't do the stereotypical, you know, blood coming out from under the door because that would immediately yeah. <laughs> have to be attended to in a hospital. You're not criticizing our favorite show, are you? Uh, I've always wondered about vampires as well. Uh, clearly, blood, you know, in human history is is very important and we've placed a lot of uh, a focus on it uh, as life-giving. But th- she says that, uh, or she finds out from her coworker that 200 bags of plasma have been taken and plasma 
plasma in the blood game isn't exactly the same thing as blood. So I was starting to speculate about the different types of vampires you could have. Like, what if you had a vampire that was just into platelets? It's the blood. He, he didn't really care about that. He could take the blood, put it in a, uh, uh, what's the thing that called it? A centrifuge. Yeah. <laughs> and just get the, uh, get the iron out of it. He just wants those gooey platelets. That's like the cream off the top. Yeah, there you go. And then that vampire, you know, with all those extra platelets, he would have uh, amazing healing abilities, right? And when you cut him, immediately just, just platelets up, seals that cut. <laughs> But enough of my fan fiction. We've got a few. We've got a few facts to go with this possible fiction, and as okay. you have, may have anticipated, these are vampire facts. Now, as eager believers, we're open to the existence of vampires, but these facts will deal solely with the uh, concrete aspects of the cultural myths of vampires and vampire-like creatures. First fact, many cultures across the globe have vampire or vampire-like legends. Bulgarian legend tells of a vampire called the Vrkolikos. The Vrkolikos has features and behaviors similar to many vampire legends, but it consumes flesh, particularly human livers, rather than blood. Next up, Romanian legend gives us the Strigoi, who with its blood-drinking and shape-shifting powers inspired the myth of Dracula. Traditionally, however, becoming a Strigoi upon death wasn't connected with the bite of another Strigoi, but with unpardonable sins like dying without being married, being executed for perjury, or being the seventh son of a seventh son. Wow, they're strict. <laughs> and finally, Filipino folklore tells of a vampire that appears as a beautiful woman who feeds with a long, proboscis-like tongue. Commonly, this vampire will marry into a family and slowly drain the husband dry over the course of weeks or years, leaving him a soulless, desiccated husk of a man. That vampire is called an asswang. See, you, you, you thought you know where the joke was going, but it actually ended up somewhere else. Uh, which of these facts is a fiction? I'm going to go with number two this time. Number two is incorrect. It is actually number one that is true. No. And the it's a kind I of a suck at this. It's kind of a technicality. See what I did there? That was a vampire uh, joke. Okay, God. Uh, it's <laughs> it's actually Greek legend. The Vercolikos is a real legend, but it's Greek legend instead of Bulgarian legend. And there is a who oh boy. It's actually um, it's it's not a very happy idea. But uh, during World War II. Uh, during the Great Famine that took place uh, in parts of World War II and in uh, Greece, uh, about 300,000 Greeks starved to death. And, of course, because of the expediency of getting these bodies buried, they had to put many of these bodies in mass graves. Now, because these mass graves were, in a lot of cases, uh, unconsecrated ground, uh, the locals were very worried about a very large number of dead people coming back as Rakolikos to haunt them. And uh, so they had to take preventative steps, uh, such as beheading the corpses, before they put them in these mass graves. I think we've all beheaded a corpse. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, this is, yeah, this is a lot, though. This isn't just a weekend thing. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, Scott, well, we've got, uh, you got one more <laughs> shot to get on the board here uh, with our final story for tonight. It's a story called Ring Toss. Frakes starts us off by telling us in the heyday of the touring carnivals, prize booths were big money makers for the Barkers on the Midway. And we get a little demonstration from Frakes uh, on the show about how, how carnival games are rigged. He does a little uh, bottle game. He does the, uh, the, the old dull dart and the balloon game trick. 
And I had to wonder, uh, what if he did knock down all those bottles during shooting? Would they have to go back and <laughs> reweight them that you know, that much more? He's he's just that good. But anyway, uh, we cut to a carnival, and we hear the tale of Big Ralph Zabriskie, who ran a gaming booth at the fair for 20 years. But Big Ralph was secretly an ex-con who was guilty of everything from grand larceny to murder, and he was hiding from the authorities in the carnival, still following his dishonest ways by cheating little kids out of their money. And we see that. We see him take money from a little girl who's playing his rigged games. She only wants a stuffed animal, but she loses, and he sends her on her way. However, she and her friends run into an unassuming-looking older gentleman who says, let me have a try, and he proceeds to win the game. It's a ring toss. He wins a bunny. He gives it to the girl, but he doesn't stop there. He continues to play and win all day long. Stuffed animals are flying left and right. A huge crowd has gathered to see him humiliate Big Ralph, and finally Ralph shuts the booth down and sends everyone away. Later at the carnival, Ralph catches up to the old man, and he roughs him up, demands his money back, and he breaks his glasses, and he's convinced that he knows this old man from somewhere, perhaps from his former criminal life. The old man tells Big Ralph that he's a cheat, and he'll soon get what's coming to him, but Ralph simply walks away. Back at the fair, there's a problem in the Chamber of Terror ride. A car has come off the tracks, and Ralph goes in the ride to fix it. While there, he is, of course, buffeted by the recorded screams and plastic skeletons of the ride, but as a hardened criminal, he's, of course, unaffected. That is until, abruptly, he sees something that horrifies him. We don't see it yet as the audience. Outside of the Chamber of Terror, we hear Big Ralph's screams, and two employees rush in to help him. But when they arrive, they see Ralph dead, hanging from a rafter of the ride, and near his body, the mannequin-like figure of an old man, identical to the old man on the midway, laughing at Big Ralph's death. Quite a arresting story. And speaking of being arrested, <laughs> this this amps up real fast. We find out this guy's done some grand larceny, not great, to murder. I like yes. Yeah. Just he's guilty of everything from tearing the tags off of mattresses to baby rape. It's like, wow, yeah. this guy, he can cover the whole spectrum. Yeah. He's wasted as a carnival barker. Yeah. Oh, I wanted to point out really fast. I'm not sure if you're familiar, but I saw a certain name in the credits and uh, my ears perked up. Uh, Robert Zadar stars in this short. Robert Zadar is uh, he's an actor. He is distinguished by his huge jaw. He is a big guy and he has an even bigger jaw. He has some kind of or he had he passed away recently, but he had some kind of disease that gave him this gigantic square like Coleman lantern jaw uh, which he's put to use in many let's say direct-to-video and B-movies he plays a heavy (laughs) in a lot of these films and I'm surprised that he had such a small role he's just one of the people that runs in at the end and sees that Big Ralph is dead but he could have been Big Ralph himself I think Uh, Our last set of facts to go with this possible fiction concerns carnivals. Carnivals are part of an age-old tradition, both in Europe and in America. And Mm -hmm. here are our facts, or are they? The first fact, the Chicago World's Fair in 1897 was an important catalyst for the American carnival. It had an area that included rides, games of chance, freak shows, and burlesque that inspired the attractions in later traveling carnivals. Our next fact, though many carnivals and carnies are honest, trustworthy souls, there has been a tradition of dishonestly making money off of fairgoers in the past. In the olden days, when carnival barkers thought they had identified a particularly gullible customer, they would surreptitiously mark that person with chalk, generally on the patron's back, to signify to other barkers that we've got a live one here. This led to the term mark, that is, someone who is a target for fraud. 
And lastly, the carousel is a staple of the Midway, letting children experience the joy of riding horses or fantastical animals and letting parents suffer the pain of perpetual calliope music. Though carousels are popular both in Europe and America, in Europe, carousels typically turn counterclockwise, while in America, they usually rotate clockwise. Which fact is actually fiction and is beyond belief? For the game. Well, I think I've already lost the game with my four (laughs) previous strikes, but um, I'm going to go back to number three. Number three is correct. That is the fake fact for this round. It's actually the other way around. In Europe, they turn clockwise. In America, they turn counterclockwise or uh, anti-clockwise, which we don't say in America. So maybe Europe just didn't want to mess with that. And let's just keep it the way it is here. (laughs) Oh, Okay, I got one. It. Yes. One out of five. It's nothing to be proud of, but uh, but I, I, not a total miss. You're not going home empty-handed here. Like the little girl from the Midway. And actually, <laughs> the area that I discussed uh, from the Chicago World's Fair that had all these attractions was uh, called the Midway Plaisance. Uh, and that's where the term, the common fair term, the Midway, comes from. Mm. Well, uh, let's check out the score at the end of the game. Uh, out of five <laughs> possible points... You got one point. One. Which, like we said, not a goose egg. But how do I match up in the rest of the seasons in your previous guests? Well, um, I think on average our guests have generally done a little better. But I have to say, (laughs) this right out of the gate, this is an interesting episode. And in just a little bit, we'll talk about the uh, veracity or not of the scenarios presented in the show. But uh, yeah, um, a lot of interesting scenarios and uh, a lot of uh, tough facts. So uh, it's nothing to be ashamed of. I, I think you did you did your best. Well, I am uh, predisposed of, to feeling ashamed of myself. So, <laughs> well, if that's the way it's going to be, that's the way it's going to be. Uh, again, uh, Scott is playing for Feed the Kids, uh, and you can help out as well by going to feedthekids.com. Give hunger the boot. Together we can wipe out Capricorn hunger. And just before we say goodbye, let's reveal which of today's stories were fact and which were fiction. And Scott, let me know what your guesses were on these as well. Uh, for morning sickness, as it turns out, No, this is not a real scenario. It's based on an urban legend. And when watching this, I was pretty sure that this was uh, a little too far-fetched. Yeah, I I didn't buy an octopus growing (laughs) in in this person's abdomen. Yeah, and now that you know that that octopus needs to have uh, 69,999 other brothers and sisters that are fastidiously taken care of by a starving female octopus over the course of five months. Yeah, this this wouldn't work. Maybe something smaller, though, or something like a seahorse or something would work. For the second story, The Curse of Hampton Manor, it turns out, yes, this story is actually true. I, I don't know about you know, curses or possessions, but this scenario uh, did actually play out. And the house that they mentioned was owned by Leona Helmsley. Uh, it was called Donellan Hall. It's a private mansion in Connecticut. And she owned it until her death in 2007. And as of October 2019, the estate was listed for sale at $16.5 million. Now, mm. Uh, I'm sure as a writer, uh, you're, you run into this, but so sometimes you want to keep the figures kind of vague because it won't necessarily let your story age all that well. Mm-hmm. And in the scenario in the show, she says, well, I'll take that house for $300,000. Yeah. 
in and California. He's like, that's over <laughs> twice what I or, or, yeah, that's uh, that's that's more than twice of what I paid. So let's be generous and say he paid seven fifty for it in California. Now I know that this show is in the nineties, but come on. These things get the inspired by actual events yes. disclaimer. Right. And and you don't really know how far they So the idea that the person was electrocuted in the tub while on the phone just denying the uh, <laughs> the curse. <laughs> yeah. I don't know about that. I don't that. know if it played but, out exactly that way, yes. But I um <clears throat> well actually I have a hard time sorting out my guesses on these things because I am a natural skeptic. So just about mm. every one of these things I look at and I say, yeah, no, that, no, no. But then uh, half the times it turns out that uh, these are inspired by actual events. They are true. Yeah. Because there are people that believe in curses. There, That's true. There, Yeah. <laughs> We're not uh, evaluating the veracity of the curse, just that uh, people yeah. believed in it. Yeah. That, that applied for me to this next story, Wax Executioner, uh, which is a true tale. Uh, so reportedly, it took place in a wax museum in Canada. And what got, I, I did believe this one. And what got me about the story was the level of specific mundane detail to it. The fact that there were all these, you know, pretty verifiable details that no one actually died and that there was common sense in the guy going, whoa, that's dangerous. I better put a fake blade in there. You know, if this was something that was a little more unbelievable, uh, somebody would have been beheaded, you know, and they would have seen the uh, the executioner figure running away. But the whole thing seemed like, yeah, this seems plausible. I, I, I dismissed it. I thought. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. See, now that's interesting because that was my mistake for Blood Bank, uh, which apparently is actually true. Uh, a situation like this happened uh, on the East Coast 20 years ago, according to the researchers on the show. Somebody was looking to steal blood from a blood bank, and they knew that the hospital would cover it up because they didn't want to be associated with the idea of the vampires. They made it ridiculous so the hospital would look like they were crying wolf or just being ridiculous when they said vampires took our blood. That was their strategy there. And I thought I dismissed it because I thought, okay, come on. We, this, this seems like a, you know, like a Ray Bradbury theater situation here. Like, I, I don't believe this. Yeah. I, I still don't believe it. <laughs> well, take it I, up. Take I'm it sorry, up with the I, unbelief. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I doubt the veracity of, I doubt how seriously they've researched these things because they got a show to put on. That's true. That's true. Uh, so when the, so when they just say it really happened twenty years ago, take our word for it. Um, I don't know. <laughs> you're beyond belief. You're doubting the entire show. Yes. For all I know, you just made up the show on your own. Yeah, I just I just recorded. <laughs> I got yeah. Jonathan Freaks to record an entire episode with uh, ring toss and milk bottles. Yeah, and then I sent it to you. It's plausible for the last story. <laughs> ring toss. Not this time. They made it up. It is not true. And there's so much. It, you've made this point before. There's so much unverifiable detail in this. Like, and what what does it boil down to? An ex-con got mad at an old man. Like, this is, <laughs> and then he ends up hanging in a ride. This is some '90s Twilight Zone material. Yeah, I expected Forrest Whitaker to walk out at the end of this one. So. <laughs> Not true, but thanks so much for joining us this week, Scott. And thanks for joining us, listeners, for Eager Believers. And remind people where they can find you online, Scott. They can find me at generationsgeek.com or at scott-pearson.com. I'm cursed with a uh, 
a, a very common name, so I had to stick a hyphen in there. Sure. Um, and uh, you can also find me on the Twitter and stuff like that if you search around for my name. All right, go check that out and join us next week for another episode of Eager Believers. And until then, believe half of what you see and nothing of what you hear, especially on podcasts. Join us next week for more Beyond Belief, Fact or Fiction.